Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another Battleground PA podcast. This is Joyce Davis, Penn Live's opinion editor and host of Battleground PA. And today, there's a lot of earth-shattering news to discuss with the impeachment trial of President Donald Trump underway in Washington and the Senate and the Iowa caucus only days away. But today, we're also going to focus on an issue at the heart of the 2020 elections, how race plays in today's political landscape. And for this important discussion, we have a little different lineup. We'll be joined by our usual Rajette Harris, the Democratic uh, analyst, and David Dix is joining us. David is president and CEO of Luminous Strategy, who prides himself on being able to work on both sides of the political aisle. So stay tuned, everyone. We promise you won't be disappointed. This is Battleground EA, a Penn Live podcast discussing the issues that matter to Pennsylvanians and documenting the events in our state that will shape the battle for your vote in the 2020 presidential elections. Okay, we are back. And let me say, if you want to join this conversation, you can do so at Battleground PA on Twitter and also on Facebook. And you can also send us an email at topics at battlegroundpa.org. So join our conversation. But anyway, let's welcome Rajette. Good to have you back, Rajette. Thanks for having me again. Excellent. And welcome, David Dix. This is your first time here with us. It is my first time, so be gentle. (laughs) Okay. Well, we all know Rajat is our Democratic analyst, and she's chairwoman of the Dauphin County Democrats. But, David, who are you? Tell us what you're about. (laughs) Well, I'm uh, president and CEO of Luminous Strategies, which is a now 10-year-old government relations public affairs firm headquartered in Harrisburg. Uh, We have statewide reach with offices in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. Uh, and that's a contract lobbying firm. But a lot of the work that really drives my passion are the politics and, you know, participating in forums and opportunities to kind of lift up these issues that we often see on television and on the radio. And we have to disclose that uh, David Dix is also a member of Penn Live's editorial board. So he is one of the thinkers who are helping to shape our editorial stand. So thank you for being here. I'm honored to be included in such an esteemed group. <laughs> okay. Well, with that, let's step right in. Look, We've got a trial underway. The president of the United States has been impeached. That is just a fact. And now we're trying to decide, the senators are trying to decide if he's going to be removed from office. So the question that I think I want to just throw out at both of you, clearly you've been following it. What are you hearing? Is this changing anybody's minds? I mean, are Democrats getting angry and fired up or Republicans? I mean, what are you hearing? David, you're in a lot of circles, too, that brings you in contact with Republicans as well as Democrats. What are you hearing? Well, it's, it's, it's fractured, right? So, I mean, a part of why we're here in an impeachment process is what I've liked to dub as John Bolton's last revenge. <laughs> when he was, you know, asked to resign uh, from the White House, uh, he left a, a trail, uh, if you will, that's led us to this point. And, you know, now the major crux of the impeachment process is whether or not John Bolton will be availed to testify. And I think a lot of, you know, the outcome of this trial is going to be dependent on whether or not senators feel like John Bolton's testimony is critical to them making a decision on whether or not the president should remain. It looks so far that the president's legal team has created a buffer around the ability. And they've also kind of created a catch where if you want to hear from John Bolton, they also intend to have a witness of Hunter Biden. Well, that, so, you know, that that's a good point. I mean, 
Rajat, would Democrats have ever thought that John Bolton would be a gift to Democrats? Because <laughs> that's basically what it, because he stepped up, it looks like at least there's a chance witnesses will be called. But what about this bringing in Biden, making him testify? I mean, how are Democrats feeling about that? It depends on the Democrat. For me personally, I say let Hunter Biden testify. I don't feel as though he did anything wrong. And if he did, let it come out. Let him testify. And plus, it's a double standard. One of the main talking points I know I've been using is that the president has been keeping people from testifying by saying, uh, calling executive privilege. Uh, So we can't say that about him and then not want to testify ourselves. To me personally, though, the Bidens is just another distraction. As I'm watching the hearing, the Republicans, their whole defense is he might have done it. Who cares? But let's not talk about that. Let's talk about the Bidens. Yeah. Well, <laughs> they're, not, they're not really uh, addressing the issues that the House managers uh, brought up, and that's because they're facts. Right. We're still talking about process. Mm-hmm. We're still talking about the Bidens. It's the same old, same old. But are um, people being fooled is the question, or are people being convinced? Whatever but I also way don't know that the president's legal team has advanced the position that he might have done it. So what? I think that he said, they're saying— what he's done does not raise to the level yeah. of an impeachable offense. Well, but, but they, they wouldn't that's even, something that the they, American people are having trouble kind of They went even further, which is what I'm... They've said that abuse of power is not, not impeachable. impeachable. That argument was made last night that even if a president abuses power, he should not be impeached or can't be impeached. What is that about? I mean, Because the facts show that he did abuse his power. That's why. But are what people, else can you say? But are people, from what you're hearing, are they buying? Are you buying that... Abuse of power I think there are two okay. audiences that are mm-hmm. important. And, you yeah. know, I feel like the Democratic Party leadership has, has failed to kind of keep these two audiences in mind. One, you have the 100 senators who are in front of you, the majority of whom are, are Republicans. So it's going to take extra convincing. And two, and most importantly, you have the American people. And I don't know that the Democrats have succinctly, clearly made their case for why this person needs to be removed. How were, how were American lives either jeopardized, harmed, or put in danger by the president's actions? I think answering that question will go a long way Mm -hmm. in kind Mm -hmm. of bouldering the Democrats' case to the American people. Because right now, it really seems noisy to the American people. Right now, it really seems complicated. And right now, I don't know that the impeachment managers were able to put a case, particularly late into the evening, that the American people saw, resonated, and understood how the president's actions put them in danger. Well, I think there's two parts to that. Number one, as you mentioned, because of McConnell— the House manager's uh, discussion did go into 2 o'clock in the morning. Even I had to go to bed because I had to go to work the next morning. (laughs) (laughs) There's the problem. (laughs) So I will agree that was an issue. But the problem with the audience is the Republicans, I mean, you had uh, Senator Ron Paul doodling and writing and listening to music because his audience isn't the House managers. His audience are the Republicans in his state that are polling that they're 90-something percent in favor of President Trump. So a lot of your Republicans are wondering, if I do the right thing, if I do my job, a lot of times our elected officials forget that they're here to represent the voters, not to represent the president, which, in my opinion, and a lot of Democrats' opinion, that's what the senators are doing. Right, but recognizing early on that this is political theater and gamesmanship, I just feel like the Democrats have made a couple of missteps one of which was Speaker Pelosi holding back articles of impeachment for three to four weeks. You know, those three to four weeks are weeks lost. Those three to four weeks are weeks where you have four senators who are running for president who are now captured by the House and captured by these proceedings 
when they have to run for president in Iowa next week. But she didn't have a choice. That was a negotiation tactic. Uh, McConnell didn't even want to have a trial well, because Ma- she held Ma- that. Then the trial occurred. McConnell was asking for those articles of impeachment to be delivered. Nancy Pelosi, to, yes, it could have been a political, a strategic tactic. Well, but I, that honestly, was a tactic that's failed. When I them. look at it, I think, I, to be honest, it looks like she played the best hand she, she had. I mean, she at least. Well, she was someone who was never in favor of impeachment. Well, exactly. She never wanted exactly. impeachment. Her but house colleagues brought her to this point. No, and, President Trump brought her to that point. Whoa. OK, so we've had a full discussion of the Senate trial. I think this is good. But but listen, the issue that we have here is if they don't accept witnesses. Honestly, if they don't, and if Bolton comes out with something in that book, that's going to be yeah, he's embarrassing. He's already dropped his manuscript. I right? know. It's like, he, <laughs> do, I mean, Times. do you get the impression that he planned it exactly like this? The problem that I see with this is the American people, and this is Republicans, Democrats, whatever category you want to look at, already don't trust government. They already mm-hmm. don't trust elected yeah. officials. Yeah. Yeah. So if we have a trial that is not a trial, I said at, during our podcast last week, if I got arrested right now, am I going to be able to set hmm. the parameters yeah. for my trial, pick my jury, and pretty much manipulate it so it turns out in my favor? The answer is undoubtedly no. Yeah. So well. I don't see how we can't have witnesses. And as I mentioned before, let John Bolton speak. The president wants to have a witness. Fine. Let that witness speak as well. But we have to have a fair trial in the minds of the American people. What do you think, Dave? Well, to your point, I think, yes, this is very uh, calculating, you know, mm-hmm. from his initial exit and in revenge to right now. I think John Bolton has been meticulous about how information that he has had access to leaks out. I mean, your manuscripts just don't end up at the New York Times by accident. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and it doesn't exactly. just end up at the New York Times while you're the major focal point of an impeachment trial, whether or not you will, will or won't testify. But I just, you know, there's just a lot of, in my mind, missteps by the Democrats. They mm. could have made this more clean. They could have explained this to the American people in a more succinct way. And I think, you know, it's incumbent, particularly on Democratic Party leadership, to look at this, look at the two parallels of the impeachment process and the election of a new president. And I feel like in committing themselves to the impeachment process, they've lost in terms of figuring out who's going to replace this guy. Because elections wow. are about... Yeah, uh, Not according to the polls. According to the polls, the Democrats have done a very good job at laying out their case. Well, the point is, is that Americans still, at least it seems to be, at least the latest poll, even a Fox poll shows that more Americans are talking about removing him. I mean, it's now over 50 percent. Well, so, they want witnesses. And well, they want witnesses. So so let's move on now. I mean, the, we know that this is going to keep going and we're, we're not sure yet whether they're going to be witnesses called, but we're going to be watching it. What about Iowa? Iowa is headed our way. And one of the things that people are a little bit concerned about is that one of the senators has asked or, or somehow indicated that this could hurt. Even the, the keeping bringing up Biden's name could hurt him in the Iowa caucuses. What are your, what, what are your thoughts on that? Is this going to hurt? I could actually see it helping him. What, what are you thinking? Well, I, I got an opportunity to spend some time in Iowa last week yep. and, and really understand better, you know, how this whole caucus uh, scenario works. These are not alike. They're not like any elections that we're familiar with here in Pennsylvania. Um, it's a very unique model and one that, that draws on community. And to that point, like when you have someone like Biden consistently in the public news uh, for negative things, it does it does put a chink in the armor in terms of the, how the Iowa process works. We saw a lot of folks kind of surge and, and decline in Iowa. I think it does advantage the former vice president that he's in Iowa exclusively 
while Bernie Sanders, mm. Elizabeth Warren, Amy Kloge are yeah. all in the yeah. Senate proceedings right now, are on the impeachment proceedings. That gives that gives Biden kind of an unfettered opportunity to kind of uh, build with folks. In fact, as I was leaving Iowa, uh, uh, Vice President and Joe Biden, Jill Biden, were moving into the hotel. Oh, really? In mass. Well, we want to come leaving. back to that because I know you went to the Black and Brown, or is it Brown and Black? Brown and Black, <laughs> Brown and black yeah. uh, forum, but Rochette. With this, with Biden's name coming up so much, I mean, to me, it's been a kind of masterful stroke that they've had to kind of smear the leading dem- uh, Democratic candidate. I mean, it's a shame. And, and there's, I think a lot of people feel sorry that this poor man's son, after he lost a son and all that. I mean, do you see, at least among Democrats, with such attacks on Biden, it helping or hurting? Democrats are united in getting rid of, getting rid of Donald Trump as president. Um, Now, there is a split as far as who is best to be able to do that. Um, I can't deny that. And that's why I think uh, the Bidens are definitely going to have to come out with a statement or else this is going, if he is a nominee, this is going to follow him up to November 3rd. Well, they haven't they come out with a statement? I mean, this is the thing. I mean, but I've been very clear that there's been there's it's been looked at. It's been investigated. There's been nothing found from what we. I mean, you, uh, David is looking like askance. Is that not true? It well, doesn't but, but, but we're forgetting, too, uh, Joe Biden does not have to win Iowa to, be, to still be the nominee. No, 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 no. But I'm talking about the, the general issue. Of, the Hunter Biden issue yeah. never has passed the smell test for the American people. The average American cannot fathom earning $50,000 $50, a month for a no-show job. They just can't fathom that. So, again, you have layers and you have different audiences. And I think the, the audience that Democrats oftentimes miss is the working class American and how this plays so off. You, so so you, the idea they're just going, oh, he did nothing wrong. It's right. like, yeah, he may not have done nothing done, well, done anything wrong. Well, we haven't missed it for the has... past special elections. I'm sorry? <laughs> the Democrats have been have done very well this past two years in special elections. I'm not taking any of that away. I'm just talking, we're talking about the presidential election. And when you look at this presidential election, while Democrats may be united that there needs to be a new president, they certainly aren't united on who that president is. And I think it's all going to lead up to a very fractured, contentious and a brokered convention in Milwaukee. If you have someone different when Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina, you're not going to ever, you're not going to ever coalesce who this nominee should be. And when you get into July with Elizabeth Warren having a few states, with uh, Joe, Joe Biden having a few states, with Bernie Sanders most certainly having a few states, and then with Michael Bloomberg coming into the fray with his $32 billion yeah, in March <laughs> for Super Tuesday. Right. How is this? At what point do you see, Madam Chair, at what point do you see a coalescing around one candidate who can be strong enough to beat the current incumbent? Well, first of all, this isn't a race about who wins the most states. This is a delegate race. This is about who wins the most delegates. And I would love to go back to 2008 uh, with former President Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. They kept going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. Obama's strategy was ingenious. He didn't worry about the Pennsylvanias and the Californias and all the super states that you're mentioning. He focused on the Iowas and the small caucus states. Why? Because it's a, it's a fight of delegates. Who has the most delegates? And I'm saying, so as far as color, you know, coming together behind a candidate, that's why I've been promoting a fair process, a process unlike uh, 2016 where a lot of uh, Bernie supporters, for instance, felt as though the scale was tipped in favor of Hillary Clinton. And they Clinton. got mad over it. And they got yeah. upset. But we yeah. don't have that this time. We do have a process. Uh, we have a different process with the debates. A lot of people didn't like the criteria, but it was still set for each individual uh, candidate. So you can't say it was fixed uh, for any one uh, candidate. 
Another thing that you're ignoring <laughs> is you can't compare South Carolina to Iowa. The makeup of the states are very, very different. So I wouldn't be surprised if there are two different winners of those two states. But so you think that, that's going to be an issue? You think that's going to be a problem? It most certainly is. No, right? it won't. It, 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 so, so Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama uh, conceded that race, I believe, June 22nd of that year. June 22nd of that year. If we don't have, if the Democrats do not have a candidate by June 22nd, is that candidate going to be strong enough to take on this incumbent president? If they don't have a candidate until July when the convention is, is that candidate going to be strong enough to take on the current president? Well, the, two, well the, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton finished the entire primary season. You're making a now. premonition when not even one vote has been cast yet. Well, so okay. let's let the Democratic voters it's decide. It's clear that we've got some issues here as to whether, yeah, you know, what's going to happen. It's going to be decided by delegates, and it'll be, those delegates will decide probably on a third or fourth ballot in July in the hot and Milwaukee. And you think that'll be too late. But let's stop right here. We're going to have to take a little bit of a break. When we come back, we'll pick up this argument. But really, I want to focus now. I want you to tell us a little bit about what happened at that brown and black debate. And I want Rosette to weigh in. When you look at this, are there, is that a dividing line? Is race a dividing line even in the Democratic Party? So let's take a break. Okay, that was a tough first part. Boy, you guys have some differences of opinion. Anyway, uh, listen, if you want to get in on this little bit of an argument here, you can always send us a message at Battleground PA on Twitter or on Facebook. And if you want to email us, topics at battlegroundpa.org. So we are back and we were really battling here over whether the Democrats need to get it together, whether they need to coalesce and find somebody that they're going to all get behind. That seems to be Easier said than done, frankly. Uh, but it's going to be key, I think, very clearly to whether you're going to have a chance of beating uh, President Trump. Although, we now want to delve into, tell us a little bit, David, about this brown and black caucus that you went to, this forum that you went to in the Iowa caucus. So the brown and black presidential forum uh, is a forum that's gone on now for 40 years. Oh, really? For, uh, since um, is this only in Iowa? It's it's only been in Iowa. Okay. Uh, now they you know with this race they're going to expand a bit. Uh, they feel they realize that the audience for such a debate is much long much larger than just Iowa. Uh, founded by a gentleman uh, Dr. Wayne Ford, who was a longtime African American uh, member of the state house in Iowa. And when Jimmy Carter was running for president, is when the first time he kind of brought folks together in a in a kind of casual way in, in, a, in a nightclub. And then later, uh, particularly when Jesse Jackson made his first run in 84, that uh, was when he really said, we have to have a forum that allows for African-American and Latino issues to be brought to the fore as we kind of get ready to caucus. So there's the nothing state. like this in Pennsylvania or in it, Rajet, is there any thought that this might work here? So this is the fourth oldest, mm -hmm. this is the fourth oldest presidential forum in America ah. and the oldest presidential forum that focuses on minority issues. Interesting. In, any chance this could come here? Have you, have you heard I anything? wish it would. Yeah. It sounds great. Yeah, and it really is a, a, a really awesome time because Iowa is so important to the presidential election cycle mm. that you have all the focus of presidential candidates, and then you have them in a captive way to say, here, we're going to spend this hour talking about black and brown issues. And, the, and you could tell that many of the candidates were nervous studying up until <laughs> uh, the point at which they were on stage. And all of them, at one point or another, were rattled by the questioning. Mm -hmm. um, the one that I highlight the most is uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, who was scrutinized pretty, pretty strongly uh, for his handling of uh, the 
South Bend police chief and the fact that when he joined the police department, they had far more African-Americans in the police department than they did when he left. And, you know, he he answered the question. He as ran best, them all the way. huh? He, <laughs> he, he answered the question as best he could. But you've already seen and just it's, it's only been a week. You've already seen his polling numbers, particularly yeah. around African-Americans, drop in Iowa based on how he answered that question. Well, so, Well, that's it. I mean, clearly, you know, it's interesting to hear. I was saying that there are specific issues that sometimes diverge with the with white voters. And so, Rochette, as you're looking at this issue, where do you see the the differences emerging between how African-Americans or Latinos or black and brown people, let's put it that way, are looking at the Democratic caucus, the Democratic candidates. How are they seeing this? We need a candidate that can appeal to the black and brown vote, especially in, with the black vote. As we all know, black voters, particularly black women, are the backbone of the Democratic Party. And that's one reason we lost in 2016, um, because the black vote stayed home. Um, I had a situation, and this isn't a party issue. We have candidates on both sides that unfortunately only reach out to the minority vote during election time. And that's something that needs to change. For instance, I had a situation with a former Democratic leader when I was talking to them about reaching out to the black vote and making sure that, you know, there's diversity within the ranks. And they said to me, oh, well, you have nowhere to go. You're not going to vote Republican. <laughs> yes. No. We just stay home. (laughs) So there is somewhere to go. And it's those type of attitudes that we need to, you know, get out of both parties. So, David, what were the issues? What are the primary issues that came up in in that? I saw a little bit of it, the first one with Elizabeth Warren. She barely let anybody else talk. But (laughs) Yeah, uh, I think, you know, the primary issues for for Latinos, obviously, are immigration Mm. and how the country treats immigration, particularly the dreamers uh, that have been in the state as long as they've been in this country as long as they can remember. And for African-Americans, it was, it was much more nuanced, but I was happy to hear from most candidates try to answer at least the question around reparations and whether or not this country is ready to t- tackle that issue. How would they, you know, deem to tackle that issue? And just before the debate, the day before, you had candidate Michael Bloomberg fly to Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, the site of, of Bloody Wall Street, to unveil his Greenwood plan and unveil his plan for African-Americans to, to close the, uh, the racial wealth gap. So I think, you know, for African-Americans, it was around the economy. It was around their place in the economy. How do we close the racial wealth gap? And I think for Latinos, it was around immigration, but particularly, you know, how we're going to incorporate these dreamers and find a way for them to be American did you, citizens. Was this, was this form, did it include Asians or was it really well, it obviously only inclu- black and brown? No, it obviously <laughs> included okay. Asians mm-hmm. in, in the form of presidential candidate Andrew Yang, who did uh-huh. very, very well. Uh-huh. And there were any number of Asian Americans in the audience. So, yes, uh, there were many, many participants in the audience and uh, both in the form of Andrew Yang, who is our only minority candidate at this point. Yes, so I'm going to ask both were, of you. So when you honestly, when you guys are looking at this and when you saw it in Iowa and when you see it in general in Pennsylvania, as African-American and Latinos are looking at this field, who are they? Who who has the chance to excite them? I mean, who do you see exciting? And is it about race? Maybe it's not about race. Maybe it's about, um, as you say, wealth, wealth disparity, you know, which can well, cross race. When, when you look at how African-Americans are breaking in this presidential, they are overwhelmingly for former Vice President Joe Biden. And that's been a lot of what's buoyed him through this election. I mean, the fact that he's still in it, still hovering around the top, you know, the top three for sure, uh, has been in large part to African-Americans. And he, in, in the debate, he explained it as his lifelong commitment and friendship with the African-American community. He talks about 
growing up as a child in Wilmington and not really seeing race in the way a lot of his white peers may have and having friends and associations that have that have proved to him and have, have, have maintained with him throughout his, his but career. But Rochette, it's also the connection to Obama, isn't it? Too? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> that helps. But I think we also have to look at the age difference. Mm. It's actually older African-Americans that are supporting uh, former Vice President Biden at a much higher rate than younger African-Americans. And a lot of that has to do with the issues you just spoke about, about student loans, about access mm. to not just having a job, but good-paying jobs. Um, buying your own home. A lot of these issues, the former vice president, I don't want to say he's not addressing them, but not to the extent as your Bernie Sanders and your Elizabeth Warrens are. And a lot of your your, uh, older African-Americans are supporting uh, Biden, not only for his connection (laughs) to Obama, and of course, he's known, but because they want Trump out and they think he's the best person, whether true or not. They think he's the best person to beat him. His argument is, you know, who's done better for you, black people? <laughs> who's done? I mean, look at look at how much better. Look at your empl- unemployment rate. Look at the, the I mean, your job. Everything's working to your advantage. Right, black people? But, <laughs> this is, this, but this is part of what we're missing with having more diversity in the field right now. And Andrew Yang did bring this up in the one the last debate he was able to be in. It's not just about having a job. It's the quality of that job. And that's what um, isn't being differentiated when we talk about these unemployment numbers. Mm-hmm. And then when, when you talk about the president's assertions that you know assertions that the the, the America the black Americans are doing much better because of, of of unemployment numbers, you also can look starkly at redlining historically. You can look starkly at the racial wealth gap to say, well, we haven't made the gains that we really deserve. And I think that's why that conversation around reparations in some form was a healthy one for, for particularly Democratic candidates. You keep answer. bringing up reparations. Is that really, are people pushing, is that going to be a campaign issue, even in the Democratic Party? Or are, are people really looking to see how candidates well, deal I, with this I, issue? I think it breaks differently. When you think about older African Americans, they're not as keen to try to advocate for, for reparations. But when you think about the 40 and under African American vote, they are certainly. Really? Oh, absolutely. I mean, wow. I mean, we've been, you've been directed that way by writers like Ta Coates mm-hmm. who have talked about this in length and who have even given testimony to, to the U.S. Congress about this. And this has been a consistent question, you know, as we've kind of vetted these presidential candidates. So let me, so, so it's, it's sounding like it's still. Pretty much. I mean, if Jeffrey Lord was here, he would probably say, look, I tell you, it's the economy. It's going to be the economy no matter what. So when you look at it, who is going I mean, and have we heard anything more about getting rid of the student loans? I mean, wasn't Bernie supposed to be pushing for that? Is that off the table now or where is that? Is that no, resonated? that's still a big issue. OK, that's still a big is issue. Is he still pushing for eliminating all student loans or? Yes. Yes. OK. Yes. But but people don't seem to be pu- pushing that to the forefront anymore. Well, there's hesitation on how uh-huh. you're going to do it. Okay. Someone still has to pay for it, and that's that's the question. That's that's yeah. the question and that I, hasn't really been answered. And I think answered. people see Bernie for for all of his positions kind of being pie in the sky in a lot of ways, and they're saying, "Well, we're looking at this impeachment process. We're looking at the way the Republican senators are responding. How in God's green earth are you going to get you know something like uh, student loan repayment back?" With a, with a Senate like this, with a, with, with a Congress like and this. And that's why, as a Democrat, mm. I'm focused not just on winning the presidency back, but I really think we really need to focus on getting control of the Senate and, most importantly, increasing our majority in Congress. All right. Because if we have the presidency, but we don't have Congress or the Senate, 
Well, the Nothing's poor, gonna the happen poor president would be in a real bind right now if he had the majority in the Senate oh, as yeah. well. I mean, look at that. Yeah, we have a lot of work to do this year. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I'm going to ask you guys to, first of all, look into your crystal ball, and then I'm going to ask you, after you look into your crystal ball and try to figure out who's going to emerge on top in Iowa, to think about VP, all right? And then we have to talk about one more controversial thing, Michelle Obama, okay, because that's come up. So let's start that crystal ball. Who's going to emerge on top in Iowa? I would have to say it's Vice President Joe Biden. Uh, I could see him again with this unfettered time while they're while most senators are in, are in the impeachment hearings, him kind of having the ability to kind of organize a caucus. He obviously ran with Barack Obama. So he has some of that intelligence on how how to how to come out, come out on top in Iowa. It's so fluid. Um, I, I would tend to agree. I would I would say that Elizabeth Warren or Bernie would win Iowa, except for they're splitting their votes which will mm-hmm. help Joe Biden kind of squeak out on top. Mm-hmm. But it's so fluid, so I, I wouldn't put my name to that. And, and to uh, Rosette's earlier point, it is proportional, right? So it's not right. winner-take-all. And if you have Biden with 30% and yeah. Buttigieg with 20 and Warren with 25 and you know, it can, you could see how it can get complicated with the numbers and you can have, you know, kind of like a, a, the delegates kind of be fractured. And Without coming in first, you could still win. You know, there was a poll this morning where Amy Klobuchar came in third. Yeah. And as we all know, she has won uh, the endorsement of every Iowa uh, major newspaper there, including Elizabeth Warren. So will that, you know, will mm-hmm. that make a mm-hmm. difference? We'll have to see. Yeah. Well, and now I, I have to bring up this, you know, street rumor that's out there. What if Michelle Obama were the vice presidential candidate? I mean... I personally think she's too smart for something like that. <laughs> but what are your thoughts? What are you what are you hearing? I mean, from what I know of the Obamas, they're really enjoying their private life. The pictures that I see look amazing of them <laughs> parasailing and doing different fun things. I know that the uh, speaking circuit has been good to both of them and sure. I could I, I I'd be hard pressed particularly with uh two college age children to kind of see them remove themselves out of that lifestyle and into the political fray of a, a contentious Because I think people don't realize just how stressful and torturous a life it is when you're when you're president, especially if you're taking it seriously. And when you're running, yeah. Yeah, yeah, running for office, yeah. Everyone's trying to find a way to get an Obama on the ticket. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you heard uh, Joe Biden as president, then we're bringing Barack Obama in as vice president. <laughs> and now we're hearing... Or nominated uh, the Supreme Court, they say. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, everyone's trying to add an Obama to the ticket. Um I agree it would be great, but I, I don't see that. You can't, you I don't can't see be a vice happening. president after you've been a president, can you? That doesn't you work. You, you can. Really? Yeah, the Constitution can. Yeah. doesn't say. That. Well, right. there's, there's another yeah, idea, right? Just to have You talk about there. presidential powers. That, yeah. <laughs> really. Well, if, if they, I mean, the, the point is, is that if I've heard it said that if Democrats really want a winning strategy, they need to get an Obama's name out there. The, the Obamas have that talent that you can't learn and you can't buy mm-hmm. where they just appeal to to the type to the different types of people i mean when we talk about the obama coalition he put together a group that normally don't vote democratic in fact some of those same individuals voted for trump mm-hmm. in 2016 they just have a unique appeal to be able to bring uh, people together and everyone's looking for that in all these different candidates. But they're also very judicious in how they use that Obama magic. And if you notice, they haven't really endorsed anybody. They haven't said much. Uh, this past week, President Obama did say that he thought it would be challenging for Bernie Sanders should he be the nominee to beat the current president. Um, and I think that's his way of kind of weighing in without putting two feet in the pond, if you will. 
Um, and as we know in politics, everything's done behind the scenes anyways. Well, so we don't know well, how they're do, getting involved in the background. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Do we know if they're involved? Because let me tell you, one of the criticisms I've heard and from a young voter is, African-American voter, is shouldn't they be, that there's so much at stake. Why are they sitting back at a time when really they need to be at the forefront of this? But that's kind of how, if you think back, that's kind of how they are. When it comes to issues such as that, you know, when he was president, uh, President Obama was never sort of in the forefront of the controversial issues. That's one of the differences between him and uh, Trump to me. Trump revels in it. I think he looks Well, he Trump's looks a fighter. Trump looks for he likes fighting all the time. <laughs> right? You know, uh, President Obama is more, I don't want to say he's kumbaya, but he really wants to find the areas that people agree with more and kind of bring them together more. Now, you can say that's a good thing. You can say that's a bad thing. But that's always been his personality more. And David, I understand that's why you're a Democrat because of Obama. Before that, you were yeah. one of those Republicans. No, I worked with with Governor Ridge and mm-hmm. worked with him in, in the in the Bush White House and made the decision to. Uh, you still have some of that in there. Certainly, certainly. <laughs> it's still relationships; they last forever, right? But yeah, we came on as an early hire on the Obama campaign in 2007, and you know worked as a fundraiser for his campaign and uh, on the Presidential Transition Committee as well. Um, so yeah, I'm a big supporter and admirer. I like to say when I was coming in on the Obama campaign, he was pulling seven out of eight candidates, Mm -hmm. seven out of eight. And that's just to show how fluid this presidential process can be. And candidates who are leading right now may not, may or may not be the nominee. And that's why I think it's all the more important for democratic leadership, democratic party leadership to start putting their weight in this a little bit, leaning in, leveraging in, and then forming the candidate who can beat this guy. Because if that's if that's the goal, then let's work towards that goal and not be distracted by some of the other things that are out there. Whoever the presidential candidate is, I just hope they choose a VP that sort of has what they're, they're lacking. Uh, we need the full package mm-hmm. to be able to appeal and be able to win. Don't you think we've got to have a woman? I mean, just tell me. Am I wrong? Do we does the does the Democratic Party have to have a woman? Or a I mean, what if Trump color? decides to have a woman as the vice president? It's not necessarily Pence yeah. going to be with him, right? I don't know. I mean, again, you 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 hope that the Democratic Party would live up to its highest ideals and recognize its its uh, most stalwart supporters, but that hasn't been the practice. That hasn't been the case. So you know, as I see it, I don't know that uh, that that a Joe Biden would pick a woman. I don't know hmm. that he would pick uh, Elizabeth Warren. I don't know, you know, how that would work out. I mean, I know we're, we're intended to look in our crystal balls here, but when I look at my crystal ball, it, I don't see that. You know, I see them kind of picking someone who's the most palatable, particularly depending on who the, the candidate at the top is. If it's someone like Bernie, they're going to have to pick a very centrist white mm. <laughs> Democrat, probably from a Southern state. So right. that it's, it has to be a balance. And, and knowing Bernie, he'll double down. Oh, yeah, he wow. would love to double down, right? Oh, if wow. he would love to double down. I've, you know, I've, I've, at one point I thought that as Elizabeth Warren was a nominee, she would pick someone like a Cory Booker, mm-hmm. given that they're both Northeast, but they kind of bring something different. Right. Uh, Kamala Harris is somebody who's been floated around there yep. for, for Vice President Biden. But we'll let, we'll let Rajette have the last word. Now, Go ahead. Now, this is my crystal ball. <laughs> I do think if Elizabeth Warren would be the nominee, I actually think she would pick former Secretary Julian Castro. Uh-huh. And I think really? that's one reason why he's been out there in Iowa and, and out there campaigning for him as heavily as po- as, as he has been. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, And with, that's a vote we need. We need a Latino vote. For sure. Yeah, because they also need to get excited. And yet, well, I, I hate we were going to stop, but 
when you say the Latino vote, it's been very clear to me that's not a one no, thing. I mean, it's they not. they're all over the map. With you can't just say because you're Latino you're going to vote one way or the other. But anyway, I want to thank you both for being with me today, David Dix and Rajet, our our usual Rajet Harris here. So I thank you again both, and I look forward to maybe having you back, David, soon for another episode of Battleground PA. This was Battleground PA. Be sure to rate and subscribe to us so you don't miss a beat. Have an idea for an episode? Tweet us at Battleground PA or email us at topics at battlegroundpa.org. Meanwhile, stay in the know between episodes on penlive.com. Battleground PA is hosted by PenLive's opinion and editor, Joyce Davis, and is produced by Penn Studios director, Salim Michelle McClouf, and edited by Martin Boutros. For more info and past episodes, visit us at battlegroundpa.org.